All right, I'd uh, like to open the Iowa City City Council work session for Tuesday, October the 2nd, 2018. The first topic on our work session agenda is to provide direction on City Council salary and health insurance benefits. Uh, for the benefit of anybody in the audience and people watching on TV, I want to provide a little bit of background so that uh, they will know what we're up to here. So during our last work session on September the 18th, we briefly discussed, very briefly discussed, possible changes in city council members and the mayor's salary and benefits. I made some brief comments and recommended a specific change. And in doing so, I drew upon data contained in a, memo, a September 10 memo we received from Jeff Fruin, our city manager, which had appeared in the September 13 information packet. We did not have enough time to consider my recommendations, so I promised to present them to the council members in writing, and I did so with a memo dated September the 28th. As that memo indicates, I think the data revealed in Jeff's memo, um, well, I think the data in Jeff's memo reveals there is ample justification for increasing Iowa City's salaries for council members and the mayor especially if we want to make it more feasible for more people to consider serving. So for my fellow council members, if you agree, the questions become three, I think. First, what shall the new salaries be? Second, how shall they be adjusted annually? And third, what should we do with regard to health insurance for council members? So in the memo that I circulated on the 28th, for discussion purposes, I proposed that we increase council members' salary to be consistent with the $11.50 minimum wage that we agreed to last meeting, and that it be adjusted annually with the cost of living index. I think I used the term inflation in the memo while also permitting council members to voluntarily sign up for health insurance benefits as half-time employees. If we do this, council members and the mayor's annual salaries would increase to, for council members, $11,960, and for the mayor, $14,950, respectively, effective the 1st of July, 2020. So, with that as background and you know to make sure people know what we're going to be talking about, what are your thoughts? It's going to be a council decision, so let's figure out what you want to do or we want to do. My first comment in, in your calculations, Jim, you've made the assumption that um, council members work half time, 20 hours a week. And I think that's a pretty excessive number. Um, I know we've got three retirees, and maybe you folks do. Um, you know, I think for some of you, it's, it's really become you know a passion, and you put an awful lot of time into it. And I, I don't, 
I'm not being critical. I'm just saying I think you do. You have the time. But I think we have an awful lot, and, and certainly for a long, long time, have had a lot of people serve on this council who are full-time employees, full-time business owners, whatever, who have done uh, a very good job on council and certainly do not average half-time. I mean, there's no way that I average four hours every single day um, for this work. You know, some weeks it's more than that, but most weeks it's less, obviously, the weeks that we have um, meetings and we have our, and sometimes when we have bigger packets, obviously January where we have um, a number of extra meetings for budget. But just as a baseline, that was the first thing that jumped out at me is I think basing this on a 20 hours a week is excessive in, in doing the calculation. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I just can relate to this because I'm a full-time employee. My, my income is really the main income in my like as a household income. My family rely on my income. But sometimes I have to get like time off from my work and I made that hours later on the day. To tell you the truth, since I become a council member, I usually come home every single day around nine o'clock. And that means, you know, I, you know, it doesn't matter to be just a council stuff, but sometimes we go to events, sometimes I have to come here and ask like some the staff some questions about a specific thing. Sometimes I will meet a person here in the city, like, like today I met with Steve about the project vouchers uh, based, uh, you know, programs that in on the agenda so I can understand what it is. Uh, I really don't consider about increasing or not increasing the city council salary. That's not really my, you know, my intention at all. Uh, but my intention here, uh, the mayor said, I propose we increase council members' salary to be consistent with 11.50 minimum wage. I like the word consistent. That's why I would like to see another number than 11. That doesn't mean I want more salary, no. Because in 2000, July of 2001, July of 2020, July 1st of 2020, I don't think we're gonna be still on 11.50 if we're really proposing to increase the minimum wage, of, I mean the livable wage for city employees to 11.50 starting July of 2019. But 2020, I think will be 13.25. By any mean, I don't mean you guys should use 13.25 for our salary even if you don't increase it, nothing is not a problem with me. But I would like to see you saying 1325 instead of saying 1150, because July of 2020, that's what it should be. Others? I'm one of those retired folks, and I have to be honest, I didn't uh, uh, run for council or get on council for, for the salary aspect of it. Um, I, I was quite surprised, actually, at, at, at what the salary was, uh, both good and bad. But I think uh, in regards to Susan's comment, 
having worked as management many, many years and, and uh, uh, negotiated contracts, there's such a thing as a salaried employee versus an hourly employee. And I think maybe that's what we're getting hung up on is this hourly uh, wage. And I, I would like to see it maybe more worded that um, that's the salary. And I think that's what uh, some of the other figures that you showed with the other cities were more of a salary. They didn't state an hourly wage. Uh, it's just a salary. And based on comparative cities, we are fairly low on the low side. And the other comment was that it varies. And it does vary uh, from month to month and week to week. Um, might be 40 hours one week versus 20 the next. And it all kind of balances out. But I've never thought of it in, in that respect as far as how much time that I, I spend doing it. Um, sometimes is more than others. But I would like to see it more as a salaried versus the hourly wage. And maybe that would uh, decrease that hang up on that. I'll jump in here and basically state that I agree with Mayor Throgmorton across the board, both sides to the 12,000 annual salary, um, his proposed cost of living adjustment, as well as to the health insurance. I think the big picture issue here isn't just how it affects us. I think really it is, is how does this af affect future folks' ability to serve? Now, I don't know if we, one thing that's missing from this discussion is what is the, um, um, average income for previous counselors over the last 20 years. We don't have that data here. Um, but my guess is there probably were not a lot of low-wage workers who have served on council. And I think, really, we're not going to be able to solve everything um, by this proposed increase. But I believe we will open up some new opportunities for people to be able to serve. I mean, if you're talking about I can think of someone who may be working 40 hours in an hourly job. And if they were able to have 12,000 extra a year, I, I think that would probably be the difference between being able to serve and not. I mean, this is always, by definition, a very imprecise measurement. But in my view, it's reasonable. Um, it really does um, speak to allowing more people to throw their hat in the ring. Because I think for some people, an economic barrier is a significant issue. And I think we want to try to remove that to the extent that we can, while at the same time, recognizing that this is service. We all acknowledge that we're here for public service and not for the salary, but it is a piece of it. Um, in terms of the annual cost of living, I think that that's reasonable, and I think for the part-time employees, that's important as well. So I'm hoping that this will be something that will open up new, new barriers. And for anyone on the council table that decides to run again in the future, um, it will also have political accountability. So if there are voters out there that think this is an unreasonable or this is standalone um, too high, um, Certainly, I think anyone who would run at least in the next election would be accountable to the voters in terms of their assessment on that. So I think it's good to sort of get the word out um, that, that we will have an intervening election um, prior to the time that any of this would become effective, um, at least for some of us, if we decide to run again. Um, so I, th I think it's reasonable, Jim. And I think in terms of I don't want to get too caught up in the 1150 or salary, I think you're trying to use it as sort of a rough estimate, Jim, in terms of how you came up with the number that you did, and at the same time looking at similarly situated cities, this plates us right about, I think, average in terms of other cities like Sioux City, Cedar Rapids, um, Davenport. So I, I'm, I'm really comfortable in terms of where we at in terms of numbers. Yeah, my, my feeling going into this was, you know, I think as we stated at the outset, that the concern we have here is trying to open up um, the opportunity to serve on city council to those who uh, may have a lower income, and, and that income is an issue. And I've talked to people who have had that concern and have said that, you know, I would consider running, but, you know, it's 
it's a demanding job, and I just don't know that I would, um, since it, the compensation is so low, that I'd have the opportunity to, to serve in the way that I would like to serve. So that, so with that in mind, I, I think the idea of increasing the, the salary, and I, I kind of agree with um, Pauline on this, I, I really hadn't viewed it based on hourly time. I mean, I, you know, it's, that's going to vary from person to person. Uh, I looked at Sioux City in particular. It's a population of 82,000. Uh, that seemed to me to be kind of a regional uh, reference, uh, a, a reasonable reference for the salaries. It's 13,000. I found it interesting, Jim, in a way that that's kind of where your formula ended up, more or less at 13,000. I, th I think it was useful to think in those terms that um, if you do apply the minimum wage, and some of us probably do work somewhere between 15 and 20 hours, that that's where it ends up. Um, so I don't, I don't really object to using that as a reference. Uh, I think Pauline's point is, is well taken at the same time. So I'm, I'm supportive of, of the way you've suggested we address those three points. Um, I think it will help bridge the gap for those who might be considering and think the question of how can I make it all work uh, becomes a factor. Uh, well, I think that's all pretty helpful, what everybody said. And, and I don't have, personally, any strong investment in what I recommended. I just wanted to get a conversation going and having mm -hmm. something to, to focus our attention on. I think Susan's point about how probably the average council member over the years has not spent 20 hours a week. In the past, I've heard people talk in terms of 10 to 20 hours. It depends on the week. You know, and, and what's coming up during uh, for the, you know, the next meeting and so on. And I think your point, uh, Pauline, about not really thinking in terms of hourly wage, but instead of thinking in terms of salary, is probably a good idea. Uh, and Rockney, uh, I was using the hourly wage as as a surrogate, yeah. <laughs> trying to see, okay, instead of just doubling salary, which is what I was originally thinking, I thought, well, it's, what happens if if we use 1150 as a starting point? What what do you end up with? <laughs> and I had to use some assumed hours per week in order to come up with some, uh, an estimate. So, yeah. So I, you know, I'm personally um, um, completely agreeable to the idea of having a, of increasing the salary to the numbers that I indicated and kind of not thinking in terms of hourly wage. Uh, and, but I don't know if, there, if the rest of you agree with that idea or if you'd want to do something similar, I mean different. <laughs> I agree with you, Jim, so that's where I'm at. I, mean, I think the numbers that you've put out, regardless of how you got to them, fall within reasonable co uh, comparison of other um, cities in the state. So I, I don't think it's unreasonable. I, so uh, for me, really, I I'm not really very supportive of this because I said last time I'm not supporting to this because I would like to see city employees first like being having like increase of the minimum wage even though we talked about it but now you know I don't know you you Rockney said you use that number just to 
to calculate, but you know that that's not going to be a number in 2020, right? Well, if, if we stuck to the, the, the minimum wage figure for calculating in the future, right, it, it would not be what, what we'd end up seeing a, a year or two from now. Or three years from now. What do you mean by if we stuck to if we stuck to eleven fifty? You mean? Well, but you know, if if we start, if we just drop the idea of thinking about minimum uh, applying the minimum wage as if we're uh, and instead use just use the the end the, the 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 numbers that are generated by using that figure as a salary, then. What we would be accomplishing is increasing the salaries for the council members and the mayor somewhat, not, not by some huge dramatic uh, amount, but by a reasonable amount given what other mayors and council members and other, in the 10 other or whatever, nine other cities are getting paid. So, you know, it's, it seems to me that's a reasonable thing to do. Yeah, I just feel like we did not have a strong discussion about the minimum wage that, as we have, or the livable wage for city employees, seasonal city employees, as we have this a strong discussion on this, I really don't support it. Uh, I'm gonna vote no for this, and I will just, you know, think that I can I can revisit it after I see that we already have agreement on increasing the city employee, the seasonal employees to $15 an hour for the next three years. Okay. Uh, Pauline, John, do you have views? Uh, I, as I said, I could go either way. I could say, um, you know, peg it to the minimum wage or just set it at, say, Sioux City's 13000 and leave it at that. And then you, I guess, would adjust based on a cost of living from that point forward. I, either way, I, I mean, they, they sort of land pretty much in the same place. Um, so I think the, the intention is similar with well, either scenario. I, be clear about what you Let me want. challenge that just a little bit. If, if we um, uh, apply Maz's thinking and use the minimum wage of 1150, then it goes two up years from, it a goes year up from now would yeah. go up, and a year after yeah. that would go up. Right. I did not try to calculate what $15 an hour, 20 hours a week would come out to be. And I know, thought so you... I, I think it'd be cons you know, significantly higher. I think it's, in, in your memo, I thought you said it would, with those subsequent raises in, in effect, it would bring the council member's salary to 15600 by 2022. Yeah. Sorry, I have to look at my memo about that. So, I don't know. M maybe it's best to, uh, if it's confusing in any way, to sort of tie it to the uh, minimum wage increases, just setting it as a salary um, at whatever we feel comfortable with. You know, I'm suggesting 13000 and just leave it at that uh, and then adjust it based on, you know, the whatever cost, we, of living. cost of living from that point forward. Um, uh, and if, if we're going to do anything, and I'm f 
fine with leaving it where we are. Um, and I've talked about that before. But if we're going to make a change, I think it should just be set it as a salary and increase based on cost of living. Okay. Well, that's, I, I yeah. think totally separate it from the wage because I, I think if you put it up there now and then you're going to increase at the same rate that you're increasing those seasonal employees, then you really are pegging it as if you're working 20 hours a week. And I really think, as I said, yeah. I, I think that's over and above for most. Yeah, I, I think there is some argument for just putting it as a salary and not tying it to hourly Everybody uh, for all those reasons. Everyone works differently. Um, there, there wouldn't be an, any expectation about how many hours you would work if we just said it's a salary. But I think it's, it, in my mind, I kind of viewed it, well, more, okay, if you look at it, from my experience, say as Jim had said, 10 to 15, what is that? And you put it at 13,000, what would that translate to in terms of an hourly? And it would be higher, um, but that's okay too. Um, so, you know, I, I think the a salary after 13,000 seems like a reasonable step up that achieves our goals without tying it to hourly considerations. Where are you getting 13000 Sioux City, uh, their city council is 13000 a year. Jim, you were at eleven nine, correct? Correct. Yeah, so you're making a different proposal. So I guess, do you agree or disagree with Jim? Yeah, actually, I was recommending $11,960 yeah. for council members. I guess I am disagreeing with Jim. It, it sets it a little bit higher, but then it caps it at that higher rate, so we don't end up in three years being at fifteen thousand six hundred. Well, but but I, just to be clear, I, I was not recommending that we oh set it at eleven nine sixty, and then have it go up to fifteen dollars an hour, and so it'd be in, a higher in fit. concert with the. Yeah. I was recommending it go up with the or down with the cost of living index. Okay. Uh, Pauline, uh, and I can see you calculating there. Yeah, I, but. I was trying to calculate the, the $15 an hour. It came out to like over 14000 a year. Uh, I'm, I'm, I would be fine with the salaried and, and not tied to the cost of living increased, I think, just as long as it, we're aware that that's what the salary is for city council. That's what I would so, go so with. So you're agreeing with Jim's numbers then? Yeah. And no increases? But, but no cost of living increase. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I would. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> You're, you're going to get. You're you know. going to end up back in the same situation. Well, that's There's true. an that's inflationary. True. All right. Yeah. All right. So. <laughs> Reverse that. The salary and, and, and then do the cost of living increase. That'd be fine. Well, I, but, I, but Jim's numbers, with Jim's numbers. I, I hear, that, you know, Maz does not agree with this, and I hear that John has uh, a slightly different. <laughs> Version, but I hear four people in favor of what I had suggested. So, are, are we comfortable with proceeding with what the four people are recommending? What okay. are we? Could you? What are we recommending? Just to be clear, uh, that on July, effective July first, twenty twenty, the council member salaries would increase to eleven thousand nine hundred sixty dollars from the current. What is it? Seven thousand. I don't remember right off the top of my head. Seven thousand two hundred fifty-nine. Thank you. 
and the mayor's salary would increase to $14,950 instead of? 8278 Yeah, so that's what's being suggested. You'll, you'll see it in writing because this, uh, be uh, this has to be done by ordinance. Yeah, and so then be adjusted uh, in accord with the uh, yeah, cost, cost of living index. As it is now. So you'll just, it'll come to you in, in ordinance form. Yeah, okay. Yep. And to be very clear, for the public's benefit and ours, this would be effective July 1st, 2020. So it's not as if we're giving ourselves an immediate pay increase or something like that. Uh, the intent is twofold, I think, to bring our salaries more in line with uh, nine other cities in Iowa. <laughs> and also to make it more possible for people of lower incomes to be able to run for council, serve on council, well, not to run for council, to serve on council uh, while also um, working whatever job they happen to have or, or not have. It'd be more viable for them to be able to do it. <clears throat> okay. okay, so there's that. But we also need to discuss the, the health insurance part. And what I recommended was that uh, council members and the mayor can voluntarily sign up for health insurance as half-time employees. And, you know, there was data in Jeff's earlier memo about what the monthly, was it the monthly um, contribution from the, from the council members would be, and the city's contribution would be equal to that, whatever the council member's monthly contribution was. So one of the possible benefits, I think, for increasing the salaries is that it makes it possible for some salary, some council members to sign up for half-time or as half-time employees for the health insurance provided by the city. And it would be more affordable for them to be able to do that I think that's correct. That's the way it seems to me when I look at the data. So what do you all think about halftime? Makes sense to me. Yeah, I'm fine with it. Maz? It is halftime. Uh, I, I really don't agree with the whole thing. So okay. yeah. Okay. I'm out. Okay, fair enough. All right, but I think we have five people who would like to have council members be able to voluntarily sign up for as half-time employees for health insurance purposes. Okay. With the city contribution. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, anything else on that topic? Nope. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next topic, which is uh, to discuss council member appointments to committees. And let's see, get my notes here in front of me. So my recollection is that uh, one or more council members want us to discuss the possibility of establishing term limits on council appointments and maybe have a broader discussion about how council appointments are made. Uh, that's the purpose of this discussion. So whoever would like to speak first, please feel free to go ahead. 
I'll go ahead. I mean, I, I think this came up really directed, I guess I would say directed at me um, for staying on Economic Development Committee. Um, I've been on the council for nine, almost nine years now. And, and to me, when you look at term limits and you look at those at the state level or the federal level, you really are looking at cases where um, there's a lot of money that gets involved in those elections. Um, it's hard to get people out to vote sometimes in those elections. There's a lot of um, lack of control, if you will, from the individual perspective of whether people stay stay in those positions. Um, I mean, you can you can look right now and and if you look at the approval or disapproval uh, rating of members of Congress, and yet every member in the House of Representatives will be up for election um, in about a month, and probably the vast, vast majority of them will get reelected, even though the majority of people in this country disapprove of the job they're doing. Know, and amazing. so, again, you're talking about money for the advertising and the name recognition, et cetera. To me, that's a, a very, very different situation than what we have here when we're sitting here all together at one table with seven members talking about the individual members of this council, what their experiences are, what their areas of interest are, um, how you how you take the different politics and, and policy views of people and match those up and put the members on the various committees. So to me, to, to make an arbitrary rule that there is um, a term limit, it, takes flexibility away from the seven members sitting here every two years to say, okay, these are the people that want these positions. Um, there is no reason, there's absolutely no reason that a majority of the council members sitting here could not have said last January, no, we're not going to put Susan back on there, we're going to put Mazahir back on there. But that was not the wish of the majority of the council members sitting here. So why? It, to me, it just seems like a very artificial rule that does not allow seven people sitting together with no, you don't have all those other issues that I just talked about from a national level to say, okay, who do we want to put on these various uh, committees? And I think you're going to have some cases where you have somebody who wants a certain committee that nobody else wants. I mean, Terry would not have gotten off from that paratransit committee if you, <laughs> no matter what you said to him, okay? True. I mean, and it wasn't a committee that, you know, everybody was trying to get on. He just felt passionate about that committee and the work. And so, to me, we're talking about one incident that has happened because one council member, newly elected to the council, didn't get an appointment. And to me, that's not reason enough to put in... Uh, a limit that limits us entirely as the council. Okay, I am gonna respond because I'm the one who brought this idea to the council. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna tell you first thing, I did not be not being appointed by the way. For the, really the public benefit, I'm gonna tell the story. Mm -hmm. On that day, Rodney was absent. You are correct, Mazir, I stand Hold corrected. on, let me finish. On that day, Rodney was absent. And I said, I would like to be in an economic development committee. And the mayor looked at me and said, even though we did a lot of committees before, and the mayor looked at me and said, he did not ask nobody before why you want to be on that committee. When I said it, he just looked at me and said, 
you can watch the recording because I'm not lying. He said, why you want to be on that? Even though he did not ask nobody before me. And he said, I want to be on that too. And Susan Mims, you're going to be on that too. Okay, be on that, but I want to be on that too. And I said, you know, I've been elected to that committee on that day. But after that, he, the mayor said in the same day, I think, Rockney, you want to be on that too. And I said, why is Rockney? And they told me that because I'm new. I need to have ex experience. And guess what? Rockney was new to the council when he became on that committee. And I said clearly, is there is difference between me and Rockney? I was clear. I was not being not appointed to that. I did. And after that, I requested. So, like, because I just see the mayor very passionate that you and him and Rockney want to be on that. And he told me that maybe Rockney can reach out to you. And Rockney reached out to me and asked me if I can just give him the position. Guys, we, it was clear to me they don't want me on that, you know. Uh, even Dorothy was very say, if you want to continue, I can let you do. He didn't like take it from me by force or anything. I really said, yes, you can do that. I just want to highlight that. But from that time, I thought we need to have term because people cannot just sit down there for a long time. Economic development is a very important committee, and no one will learn unless they have hand on things. And how are we going to learn if there is no way for us, if we don't give the opportunity to be on that committee? That's why I really strongly recommend that to have you know, a time limit for council. I want to be there. I guess maybe Pauline want to be there. Maybe John want to be there. Maybe they want to be on another, like uh, something else. I'm going to have to speak about myself here. But I, if I ha if I've been given the chance, I will rotate it all my time on the council to be like in each committee each time, so I can learn more. If I've been given the chance, I will do that. That's why I'm, I'm going to tell you. That's what happened. Not. I'm not because I don't been appointed. That's why I said that. That's not true, Susan Mims. Okay. Stand corrected. So my position is, is that um, I know that the way that the Board of Supervisors does their executive leadership, they do have a rotate through method. Um, I don't know that I'd want to necessarily have a hard and fast rule that we would have to do that. Um, but for example, for the chair of the Board of Supervisors, I think that they can, I think they rotate it every two years, which is also a very important position and essentially, you know, they conduct the meetings for the board and they have a lot of official roles and I think it's more time. So I think that's sort of a nice template. I think the other thing that we have is we have on a lot of our boards and commission that we've encouraged rotation on that as well. I wouldn't want a hard and fast rule. Um, uh, so my thought would be as a sort of presumption that we look at two consecutive terms and then after that time we really look at, and this would be for any standing committee that, like including for example, I'm on the City of Literature Board. Um, the supervisors 
rotate through that as well. I think there is an advantage um, to doing, at least if we get the support of council members, to do two consecutive terms. Um, and then we would have a presumption that we would try to look for and see if new members want to do it. And it may be that new members don't want to do it. Like Terry's board, it didn't seem like he had a lot of takers. And it seemed like Terry wanted to do it. Um, so it may be that we may we, we continue on the way we've done before. In particular, let me just share publicly, too, why I really wanted the continuity on the board. And I don't know if this is one of your reasons as well, is that we spent about two years on our, on our tax increment financing reform. We had just finished the policy, so we didn't have anything else in terms of that particular policy. But we probably spent, as a committee, probably a lot of time, 40 to 50 hours. And so my interest was, is I wanted to see some continuity with that. But I think you bring up a very good point in terms of making sure we have some rotations through. So that's what I would like to see, is that we would have a presumption that we would um, do no more than two consecutive terms. So that would allow a four-year time period. Um, and then um, if, if we're in a situation where the, the person wanted to serve again, um, I mean, theoretically, the council would have the authority to do that. That, um, but we would sort of consciously be thinking about the need to, to rotate and to learn because I think we can be all more effective counselors the more different types of committees that we serve on. Um, and of course, it would certainly just be a with this being the nature of sort of a resolution or, or how, I mean, it certainly wouldn't be an ordinance. So future council, if they wanted to, could change it. But I think in terms of it, it thinking would, about it. It wouldn't be an ordinance. Well, you know, it wouldn't be an ordinance, but like a resolution um, or I don't know what it would probably be, but sort of that's what the. If it's, a, if it's done formally, it'd be a resolution. Okay. Yeah. And so that makes a lot of sense to me. So we would have at least four years that the person would be able to serve. By the same token, we'd be thinking about bringing in new voices to various committees um, sort of moving forward. So I, I think it's correct to say, we'd have to check this, but I think it's correct to say that most city council members serve one term. It, it, maybe Kelly could check this out for us at some point. And if that's the case, then the policy wouldn't make too much sense. If council members, if a, a reasonably large number of council members do serve more than one council term, more than four years, then the, 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 the point is well taken that there should be some movement and rotation, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, among the various um, committees, it seems to me. Uh, that's just a quick uh, thought I have uh, based on what you are following up on what you said, Rockney. I know the practice in the past is, is that the mayor is expected to put together a list of recommended assignments and then present them to the council members at the start of each new council term, so at our organizational meeting in early January every two years. And the council is free to accept those recommendations or say, no, you know, I'd really like to be on this committee and shift things around some. I mean, so it can, and in the end, it's the council that makes the appointment. So I can tell you that when I was, uh, the two times that I've made recommendations about who to appoint to these various committees, I was thinking about a series of things like, trying to make sure that the individual council members have a fair amount of work. I mean, you know, that, the, I, I'm, that no one council member is expected to do too much or too little, but it's fairly balanced. 
And to think about the balance of it for specific committees, the balance of experience against the value, the value of learning about a new committee. I mean, that's certainly important to take into account. And also to consider, like you said, Susan, the, the backgrounds and interests of council members. So when I was recommending, uh, I don't know, John, you're on ICAD now, right? So I was thinking about the, the, the previous term, you weren't on no, ICAD. You were? Okay, so, and Rockney? I've been City of Literature. City of Literature, okay, two times in a row. So because I think you both have interest in those areas. Yeah, and in the past, maybe this needs to be changed, Maz, new members, I, I'll speak for myself, the mayor doesn't have a whole lot of knowledge about what new members can bring to bear on particular councils or uh, committees, and therefore has to just make suggestions. The I'm going to say it again. Rockney was new. But, but you have face on Rockney, yeah, and you don't it, have face on me, or that particular why? Case, but, but we had three new members. We had, we had, there, there were three new members that time. So uh, that left then Terry so and So some Susan. had still, to be assigned. It's yeah. Still. Yeah. You, you're going to have two members who being, if I being like really joining that committee, you're going to have being, like if Rockney was not, you and Susan being there for a long time too. Like you, you serve at least, I don't know how, how many years did on, you serve. Just to, be, just to be factual, I was on it for one two-year term and uh -huh. then I thought I should be reappointed because, sure. because I'm the mayor and it's a really crucial of, committee. That's great. But Susan was being there for a long time, too. I didn't ask her to, to get out of that committee, but I can join, and we can. You have the experience, and I'm the one who's going to learn you. But by the way, I'm going to tell you that's what you don't know about me. I'm a quick learner. I learn everything quick, and I'm not, like, really stupid. I can do that, you know, and don't undermine me. And I feel like really it was unfair. You know, this is was really unfair, and the way that you guys did it. You know, that's why I'm, I'm requesting this. And I agree with Rockney. If it can be two-term, you know, consistent two-term, that's fine for me. Uh, but as long as we're going to give another council member, you know, the chance. And if you can just word it like, if there is no one interested, like say we said, oh, everybody here, yeah, those two people, yeah. they, they serve two-term. But... No one want to do that. OK, we're going to ask the people who serve more than two turns to join. There is no problem for that. You can just do it that way. But if somebody else is interesting, give them the chance. Because we are here to learn. All of us being elected by the public. All of us, we have to have equal opportunity. And I'm going to push for that all the time that I'm in a council. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm a little confused why it says appointments to committees, plural, because it seems to be it's boiling down to just this one committee, and I don't think we can pull that out and put term limits on, on just that and not the others, because personally, to be honest, I would have had no interest in being on the Economic Development Committee. I always... Uh, uh, bow to Susan and her economic knowledge uh, when it comes to financial things. Uh, I have been on the um, 
the ECICLG, which people aren't exactly flocking to that one. Uh, and that is only, one, we only, as a council, appoint someone to that every other year because that, that committee actually uh, rotates to between the communities and, and who's on that, who represents it. Although some people on that have been on it for many, many years, 20, 30 years, uh, when they rotate through it. Uh, because there is such a difference in, in committees and meetings and times. That committee actually meets every month and not here, uh, very rarely here. It's Cedar Rapids almost always. Uh, we recently was in Washington, Iowa. The last meeting was in Vinton, Iowa. We go to the different committees because it, it uh, or different communities because it represents all of eastern Iowa. It's Easter, East Central Iowa Council of Governments. But people don't exactly flock to be on that because it does involve a lot of time. We get a lot of materials and a lot of travel time. And when Jim approached me about it, uh, I didn't know anything about it, but I thought it sounded interesting, and it is. And especially more interesting now because I get to see Tracy Achenbach all the time because there's <laughs> wonderful staff in Cedar Rapids, which includes her. They're very helpful, very informative, and they, they do a lot of hard work. But because uh, I, I, I would highly recommend that committee because it, it really is very interesting. Uh, and you learn a lot and uh, meet a lot of people from the other communities. So uh, that's a wonderful committee to be on, to be honest. And I, I thank you for putting me on that again uh, for this year. I, th I think Rockney's suggestion gives enough flexibility. I, I mean, I think making this thing mandatory could run into problems uh, for various reasons. And so I think the idea of two and then you know, the presumption that there will be a, a, a change makes sense. Um, and then as Jim said, it, in a way it really just applies to those who run for a second term or serve as on, on council as more than one term. Um, but I think it, I think it, the idea, and I'm glad Rockney brought up the board, because I remember when we first talked about it, I thought, well, the, the board seems to have this notion of circulation among the members. The board of Supervisors. Board of Supervisors. Yep. I, I think that's a good idea. You know, I think it, you know, we, we should strive to be part of all the different aspects of what the council does. and. Um, and then, of course, there's the question with the Economic Development Committee. It's kind of a, it's an important committee. I always felt, with my years on planning and zoning, that I had sufficient background with that to um, defer to whoever else would like to do it. I mean, <laughs> it is something I think many people would like to serve on um, because it is kind of in the center of, of things related to development. Um, but in a way, fortunately for me, I felt I, I'm, I've, I've versed in that, I can, you know, offer, not compete with everyone else wanting to be on that committee, so to speak. But I do like the idea of, as Rockney said, of two with the presumption that there's a change at, after that. And Jim, to your point, the question of, you know, that would prevent someone who's only serving one term potentially from serving. I think what I'm trying to do is sort of navigate those goalposts of the two respective positions, mm -hmm. integrating what Muzahir's concerns are, as well as Susan wants a little bit more of the flexibility. And I think Susan brings up a good point, too, is that we have a relatively small body and that we do have to get the four to be able to do it. So it sort of navigates those two goalposts. And then thinking about the um, what we do with the boards and commissions, I don't even know if we have a formal resolution on that. It's more sort of a, 
a preference that we've expressed over time, and I think that would be consistent with that. But in terms of policy having to do with how well, to in other words, assign people? In, in boards and commissions that we appoint, not talking about council, commission, council committees, um, we have a preference that we've expressed to rotate people through and that you wouldn't serve more than one consecutive term. So I'm just using that as a, mm -hmm. as a, as a benchmark. Mm -hmm. And I think in this particular context, it's good for us to think about it. So I think this proposal allows them to get the experience, have some continuity while at the same time recognizing the need if there is um, for, for a change um, with the committee. So I, I personally have no objection whatsoever to having suggesting that uh, to uh, implicitly or explicitly having a policy of rotating or having no one assigned to a particular committee for more than two consecutive terms. But I think there needs to be some flexibility yeah. about that. Uh, because of unforeseen circumstances that might arise. So, but but I, I, I don't I don't have any objection to saying, yeah, let's shoot for not more than two consecutive terms on any particular committee. And and then it's it's, it's really it's kind of like a, a board game, you know. It's trying to figure out mixing and matching people to various committees. And that's why I don't think this is going to work. I mean, I. When you look at, like you say, if the vast majority of people only serve one term, and d just use economic development as an example, because that's the one that everybody's concerned about for the most part, is let's say you've got two people. Let's We can use this perfect example right now. Let's say that Jim and Rockney either don't run or don't get reelected in 2019, okay? Based on this preference, okay, I would not be on the economic development committee starting in 2020, which would mean if the committee, if the council said, yes, we're going to stick to that, it would mean you'd have three brand new people on the Economic Development Committee. And, and that can very easily happen when you have only, when you have, as you said, Jim, yeah. an awful lot of people who only serve one term mm -hmm. that in those four years, they stay on the same committee for all four years. And if it's more than one person on a committee, then all of a sudden you've got somebody that's going to have to go more than that, or you're going to have no continuity at all. So I, I go back to my original comment. I think that we're a small enough group with no outside pressures of money and those kinds of issues, but what we can sit as a group and make the best decisions based on people's desires, experience, um, a blend of, of political views, you know, for various committees, if that's important. And I think that's part of what played into my staying on it. Um, and, and I think, I think what also what happened was we need to have a clearer process um, in terms of doing those appointments from the standpoint, the mayor talking to different people and finding out who wants to do what ahead of time and potentially bringing a recommendation to council of here are, here are four people who want to be on the economic development committee, you know, or five. So let's sit here and discuss, not have it all done. Um, and I think the fact that Rockney did miss that meeting created um, I, I don't mean to be throwing you under the bus or anything, but I'm just and saying. That is what happened. I, I mean, so, I think I think yeah. that really created a, a big part of that problem because then we didn't really have that discussion. We said, "Yeah, Maza here's on," and then you wanted to be on, and so that just created a lot more problems than we've ever had since I've been on the council. So we should have stuck with what we did at that organizational meeting. I just want to ask you. You said. <clears throat> 
uh, you give example of Rockney and Jim, if they be if not being elected next right. time. Yeah. But I, I thought two consecutive term means two year each. Yeah. Right. Where you will be already done from it. And if you're being reelected, you're going to be already served four years, and he served four years, two term. That would right? mean that I could not serve. I mean. No, hold on. No. You are not going to be have the chance to serve again unless there is new members that I want to do that. But if there is, some people say, no, I really don't like the Economic Development Committee to be in, and there is no way we can just say we can have, because we're going to have that flexibility of somebody will serve more than two term if no one else interested. Yeah, yeah. But you know, Mazir, you bring up a really good point. It doesn't matter whether Jim and Rockney run for re-election or don't run for re-election and get re-elected, because what you're what you're right. What you're saying is, if we do this and you say two terms and that's it, then what you're saying is, come January of 2020, we would have three totally new members on the Economic Development Committee. It's, I don't it's agree an interesting with that. but implausible I, I, scenario. I don't agree with it. <laughs> you mean that's like, why I don't I don't how? agree with the term limits. You tell me how if if they they did not be elected at all. Let us assume that. Hopefully not. But let us assume that. You know, that means we, we have, like, both of them are not here now. Right. But we have other people here, and we have two new members going to join the team. So if those, not, those people, if they did not be elected at all, they are not here anymore. Somebody else has to be there. But say the opposite. If they being here, being elected and they are here, they still going to be part of the council. So we have two, and we have another two members, two more, or maybe we have all of them, and it will be the same. Some people don't interest it, and he can join, or she, you know, both of them can join. I, 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 I'm not following you, Maz, given yeah, Susan's um, uh, hypothetical scenario, which it's a plausible scenario. So, but, so she's saying if... Rockney, and let's just assume we don't run for re-election. Okay, make it simple. So let's assume that we do not, the two of us do not run for re-election. Then there'd be two new members, mm -hmm. okay? And and let's assume we have a two-year, I mean, two-term limit, then Susan could not serve. That, that would mean all three members of the Economic Development Committee would be new, entirely new to the Economic Development Committee. It would have to mean that. And what's the problem on that? The problem is there's no background knowledge, no experience, no, no uh, having to do with the way the committee works, the topics it addresses. And it's, it's, a, it's a committee that generates proposals that come to us. It's unique. It's really the only one we have that does that kind of thing. But both of you were new. But we've never had three brand new ones on that committee at the because same time, three, and that I, I would never support that. Does, it seems to me the way I would interpret, you know, this, this, that Rockney's suggestion of pr presumption does not make it mandatory. So that in that scenario, the, the question of, oh, we, no one uh, would be on the committee with any prior service on the committee would be a compelling argument to have someone of the three, you know, in, your, in this case, you say serve, continue to serve on economic development. And maybe the, the new member also will understand that, oh, we need somebody like have experience on that committee. That's why some of, one of them will say, maybe I can wait, just like I did wait. You know, I, I think, 
you know, this is, could happen too. And so the, the member who is there, say you the members can also get in with two new members. It's still, there is a chance like this if the people start talking about it. Say, hey, you know, this is very important committee. We need somebody with experience on this. Uh, you know, just think about it. You, you three gonna be like new if there is three people are interested. Do you think we need somebody who have experience there? We can have that talk, I guess. Yeah. I mean, again, it's a presumption, not a mandatory role. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that sounds reasonable to me. I don't have no objection whatsoever to that, but we have to permit the exercise of discretion because, because of scenarios like the one Susan uh, brought up that need to be considered. So I don't know. I don't know. We probably don't well, there, need a, a formal. I, I don't policy. know that we need a formal resolution. I, so. I think okay. we can do one or two things. I, I don't think we did it with the um, appointments to committees and boards. Um, we can document it in the minutes. We can document it by memo. Um, whatever your pleasure. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would think documenting it by memo would be a good thing. And if you all want to give um, the future mayor direction about how to make appointments, you know, like you, you made a suggestion about, you know, sort of the mayor drafting something, but then talking with everybody to make sure that everybody was comfortable with the proposed assignments, then that could be included as well. Yeah, I think a memo sounds good. And if I recall, I think the closest analogy would be our work session policy where we need, if it's not the mayor, we need two or more counselor or, or three counselors to get something on the work se session agenda. I think that arises just from a previous memo of about 10 or 15 years ago is my recollection. I mean, so in any event, I digress, but I think a memo gives us enough clarity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're going to... Some, who's going to write the memo? That's the question. Should we ask Eleanor to craft a memo based on our discussion? <laughs> you can throw it together, right? No problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. I dissent. <laughs> uh, we'll be very short. <laughs> okay. Uh, any other uh, discussion about that topic? Just talking about, you know, the, those, uh, I guess the city manager, you highlighted those positions that vacant right now. And I, for Kinsley, I think we just get to wait until we get the, the new council member so we can, uh, you know. About two hours. After that, we can just ask, uh, do this. Yeah. If, yeah. if that's okay with once, the, once we know who that person is. Yes. And uh, Jeff had suggested that that person be assigned to the spots that Kingsley had vacated. But yeah. maybe if this is something new to them and they're not going to accept it. I guess we just have to wait and ask them and have discussion about this. Uh, like, for example, I have I serve only on one. Maybe that person doesn't want to serve on three or four. He like like two or, th or two, so another member can have the chance to do. I, I just think like need to, we need just to wait until that person come up. I'm okay with that. Yeah. That's fine. So you want us to wait till November, or I mean, we can no. put an item on the the next council yes. agenda, and you can have your discussion there. Uh, I think that's thought. what we would want to do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's move on to clarification of agenda items. There's hardly anything on the agenda, but there was something you wanted yes, to bring up. Yes, right? uh, I really have two items here, and uh, 
Where's my agenda? Okay. Yeah, first I have item 6A, the housing voucher, uh, toys voucher program, which is a project-based voucher. Uh, I, I think this is really good. I had a very good meeting with Steve at the housing authority, and I would I would love if Steve can give like just a small summary for that because I know that we are concerning about the time, and you know just for the benefit of the public because we are doing something good here, and we need the public to know about it. Yeah, so um, the housing authority has been involved with the Cross Park Place virtually since the inception when the local homeless coordinating board started some strategic planning several years ago. We came to city council exactly two years ago in October of 2016 and asked you to provide a targeted admission for the um, persons that would qualify for what is now called Cross Park Place, which was then called Fuse Housing First. Well, subsequent in the last two years, the shelter house did uh, compete and did get the national housing tax credits. However, uh, the vouchers that we committed to that are tenant-based vouchers. And in the guidelines for the National Housing Trust Fund, that would have limited shelter house to only charging $480 of rent for a one-bedroom unit. Uh, currently, the fair market rent for a one-bedroom unit is $684. By converting these tenant-based vouchers to project-based vouchers, Shelter House can then charge up to the fair market rent, and then our subsidy will be larger, but it will improve the cash flow on the project because the key to this project is providing housing first, and we're talking about people who are homeless with a disabling condition, living under bridges. Let's get them into housing and then provide the services. So you, the housing authority, have committed this monetary, uh, made this monetary commitment to the project. We're just asking that we commit more by project basing the voucher so that they can charge the full HUD published fair market rent. That's fair enough. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Okay. Thanks, uh, Steve. Quite good to see uh, you. The second one I have, like, item 8G, which is a letter, like, a school crossing on Scott Boulevard. Uh, I guess I know that they said they're going to do studies, but I just would like to, as a city manager or the staff, if they can just update us on that study whenever they're done from it. If you can do that, it would be great. Or you don't you don't have up there right now, of course. Uh, let me just look at it real real quick so I can. What, what's the number again, Maz? Uh, it's page one one forty eight in the packet. Okay. I see what you're talking about now. Yeah. Yeah, we can update you. Thank you, and. Um, also, item 8J, a letter from us on Dania Street Trees, North Dutch. If you don't mind, please respond to this one. She's been responding to. She did? It's because I didn't see it. It was, it was there. there? Yeah. My, my mistake. It, it went out. I guess I missed it somehow. Late handouts on oh. Monday. 
Okay, late handout. I did not check that. Okay, but thank you. Uh, you know, the last one will be item 12, if the city attorney can tell me, because how can the resident of Iowa City know what that's about? If you can just give us, like, without going to the details, because I know this confidential, just the, the meaning of it. Sure, that's a, um, a sewer backup claim, um, and we had in the tower place and parking ramp, and we had several of those claims for um, damage to cars that we settled, and this one exceeds the city manager's authority of $20,000, so that's why it's on here. Sure. Thank you, I guess that's all for consent agenda, for the information package. In the white handout, there was a, uh, a communication having to do with Highland Avenue and the, the speed bumps on Highland, but also a suggestion that we install four-way stop sign at Keokuk and Highland. Yeah, so uh, I, 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 we don't have to have it now, but I'd like to know what the staff's thinking is about that. I don't know if there are constraints uh, having to do with Keokuk itself uh, constraints on our ability to install for uh, you know a four-way stop there I did have a conversation with some people from the neighborhood at the uh, the party in the park at Highland Park and uh, I heard quite a bit about that uh, being a dangerous spot for kids uh, to cross so there you are. How are you doing, Kent? Yeah, good evening, Kent Ralston, Transportation Planner. So, um, yeah, in the packet that you have tonight, there's quite a bit of correspondence related to that agenda item for Highland um, traffic calming. Uh, I, of the 10, maybe six or eight of them reference that intersection that you just referenced, Mayor. Um, there's no reason why we can't look at that. Um, in my mind, though, the installation of an all-way stop there's completely independent of the traffic calming because, um, as we've talked about before, traffic calming is a series of something, whatever that traffic calming measure might be, and just stopping folks at that one intersection um, really isn't going to make that, that change that we're looking for. Uh, I would also say that currently on Highland, you do have to stop at Keokuk. So really, you're already stopping on Highland, which is the street we're discussing tonight. So having folks stop on Keokuk is really sort of a, a different issue altogether in my in my mind. Um, but for us to do an all-way traffic study is uh, relatively simple, and we'd be glad to do that and provide our information to the city manager. Yeah, I think the concern is pretty simple, that uh, people drive pretty quickly coming around the bend on Keokuk going north. Yep, yeah. yeah. I think we've actually done a study in the past, but very easy to update. But again, I would just say that that's sort of independent of the of the topic before us tonight with traffic calming on Highland, because that would actually be more of a, a solution for Keokuk. Right. Okay, so you're going to uh, provide us some feedback? Yeah, yeah okay, definitely. Okay, good deal. Thank you. Any other agenda items? I'm not hearing any, so shall we turn to the information packets? <coughs> September 20th packet. IP2 um, from on the various housing projects, um, first homes being built with trust funds. Um, our project was in there from yeah, the shelter the house. Housing first the housing facility. first yeah. So it's nice to see that. Um, IP5, it was kind of interesting looking at the physical conditions across the country in various cities of different sizes, but 
kind of the one thing that, well, there's a number of pieces that stood out, but I'll just mention one, and that is that in general, what cities are seeing is that their general fund expenses are outpacing their revenues. It's a worry for the future. Also on IP2, I, I was impressive to see the figures, and we can see that we're, we're not alone in trying to struggle to, to get low-income housing into the area. The numbers were really startling as far as the shortage of 7.2 million rental homes uh, nationwide. And I, I read recently something about the home is, is the America, ultimate American dream, and uh, so we would like to, to work towards that. But also it did stress that uh, we need to uh, encourage our federal government folks to, to increase those funds, maintain those funds and even increase those funds because the amount uh, needed increases every year. Any other items? Yeah. IP6 is that state of poverty in Johnson County on the 12th, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. yep. um, so that morning, that Friday morning, um, there's a link in there to RSVP if people are interested in going. I would like to talk about IB8. I really would like to ask the city manager to talk about how he interprets this article, over, even though I see it's a good article. But what's your idea on this? Because I think if we can give like break of some kind of zoning code or something like that, maybe this is will make developer most likely want to do some kind of affordable housing or I don't know, but uh, I guess things. I right. want your oh, own that interpretation that, of that. It, it, that. That's on the September 27th packet, right? But that's the one you're referring to, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So. Oh, oh you, you're talking about the, the 20. The 20. You're on the 20. I, 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 think think so. I, have, I have something on the 20. I just jump up maybe ahead. Which one? Well, let's talk about the okay. September 27th sure. packet then. Amaz, you were mentioning I IP number eight. Yeah, yeah. I IP number eight. So sometimes I put articles in there that try to give you context to something that staff is is working on or it's on our to-do list so that when it comes before you, you, you have a little bit of uh, a background or at least you've been introduced to the topic. And uh, this particular one focuses on uh, local regulations and the impact on the cost of housing that those have, which is right now a big focus of HUD. Um, you hear a lot of communication from HUD on the effect of local regulations. Uh, so I put that on there. This is one of the items that's remaining on our affordable housing action plan, our original 15-point plan, um, and that is really to, to review our zoning code and some of our processes uh, to make sure that there's not unnecessary steps or there's not some requirements that we have that may be well-intentioned and were implemented for all the right reasons, but um, that are having a, a real negative effect on the cost of housing that, that we should reevaluate. So I'm not trying to draw your attention to anything specific in there, but it is something that, that we are uh, working on uh, as a part of that plan and will eventually come to you in some way, shape, or form. Okay. And... Yeah, th this is a long-standing issue. Uh, I can remember dealing with this 25 years ago when, when I was first on the council. Uh, many people in the development community believe that local regulations drive up the cost of housing, full stop. 
and surely there are particular ways in which that happens. But I always wonder why it is that developers don't, on their own, develop, uh, produce housing that people can afford. And you know, so it's a political question, basically, in the end. I, I, but I, I always wonder why that doesn't happen. And on that point, I guess, uh, kind of like a, a counterpoint, I noticed an article in the Des Moines Register uh, late last week about a billionaire who just sold his 10,000-square-foot home in Ankeny for $2.32 million. And you know, I thought, well, how many how many homes, affordable homes, could one build for two point three million dollars? Yeah. Uh, quite a bit. Yes. But that's another point. I don't want to digress that way too much. Any other t uh, agenda items, or not agenda, uh, info packet items on the 27th? Go ahead. Yeah. IP uh, oh, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Oh, IP 13, the South District Partnership. Uh, I'm really happy to see that uh, developing, and I was pleased to see the Equity Toolkit evaluation of this project. I think it's going to be um, a very positive action for that South District, so I'm glad that's going to move ahead. I, I just had, I don't know if Tracy, you can answer this or not. There was some mention there of like some sort of home owner, home buying education maybe for the neighborhood folks. Is that going to be a part of this? It won't technically be a part of it because it's a CDBG home project that we can only spend the federal funds on the actual on housing. The actual house, right. But we're going to look for partners um, based on uh, consumer credit, um, how to get ready for home ownership, how you repair your credit, and home like basic home ownership. So we're looking at partners that we can have some workshops in the area and invite the South District through Nextdoor, Facebook. So yeah, we're, we're going to explore those too. Good. And hopefully soon because... Um, once we start buying the properties, we want some time for people to be part of those programs so they have a chance to buy it when they're ready. Right. Very good. Thank you. I'd like to follow up. IP 13. I'd like to follow up on that, Tracy. I thought it was a superb example of how to use the equity toolkit. I wish Kingsley Botchway had been here to see this. He's been advocating uh, for us to use this kind of tool. Uh, I thought it was just a great example of how to do it well. Can you tell me exactly what you want to do? We received home funds, so we have 100000 that we are going to buy two duplexes in the Taylor Davis area. We're going to rehabilitate those and then sell them for affordable home ownership. Sell it to who? Well, the first preference we'll give to people in the South District, but um, anybody can apply. You mean like the, 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 the owner of the house that you're going to sell? It'll be for the home buyer. And the renter, I mean? The renter, I mean? You no. can offer it to the renter. We can, if that renter wants to buy it, yes. Because I don't think your, your, really your statement is clear on that. I have people reach out to me about this, and they have concern. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, I can relay to them, you know, we know who's living there, and now part of that neighborhood, you know, stable the neighborhood, as you guys said, even though I don't agree with that, because I think renter also stabilize the neighborhood. But if uh, that the idea that owner only the people who are gonna make that neighborhood stabilization, this is this is really have to be offered to the people who live on the house. And if the, the people who live on the house are not afford, and it could happen, even though they pay the rent, and I don't think the mortgage will be more than the rent. But if they cannot really buy the house, leave them alone. Go and buy another house. Because you are displacing people who choose to live there, and you make them 
go somewhere else. So I understand there is some kind of help if they move and they find different kind of rent. But this help will be for a certain period of time. Those people need to change their school. If they are not comfortable living there, they're never going to be live there. Uh, I don't think this is a good idea. And I really would like to highlight that. And people will come and talk to you about this because people are trying to like, talk about it in the community. And uh, I think also they're saying here, Taylor and Davis being selected for this house district perhaps of, because Nistons complain, police calls, and, and you know, the value of the property. Actually, you're doing this for who? Like, Question? when you say because there is many police call, are you assuming, assuming the renter who lives there are calling the police? That's number one concern. Number two concern, when you say if more people, if they reduce the call, like if the call to the police has been reduced, that will increase the value of the property there. What that means, you're helping who? You're helping the owner who live there by forcing the renter to move out because they cannot afford to buy. And also, if you, if you cannot offer to the people who live there because they cannot buy it, people asking, are you going to get help for those people to buy? Because I don't think that's a really an option because you're saying eligible income to buy the house. I don't think this is a good idea. You are putting another barrier to, the, to our vulnerable people who live there, you're trying to displace them, and they're stabilizing the neighborhood. Renter can do that too. Maz, if I could, the memo from Erica Cubley on this particular topic says staff recommends that the project proceed along with the following implementation recommendations. First, limit displacement of tenants Limit displacement of tenants by pursuing vacant properties or properties where the tenant has indicated they are not renewing their lease. Second, provide relocation assistance to any displaced tenant. Third, give current residents of the South District preference in purchasing the homes. But when you're saying, I'm going to just stop you on that. You're saying get the, the, rent, the renter who are going to move to another, give them assistance. Why? If they don't want to move, what are you going to do? If I just say you bought the, the house that I rented, and you come and said you, buy, you bought this house, and you give me the option to buy it, I said I don't have money to buy this house, or I, I, my credit is bad. I cannot buy this house, even though my income is enough to rent this house. Okay, what are you going to do? You're going to ask me to move if I don't want to move? If we find a house, the landlord has it up for sale, um, and we, we have a tenant who, who is displaced, we have to provide federal relocation. When Henry Harper and I walked the neighborhood and, and we met with the tenants that live, I asked them about that. If, if, if this was a house that you were buying, the people I talked to felt they were confident they could find another house to rent in the same neighborhood so they wouldn't have to change schools. The, the 10 folks that we talked to didn't have a concern, not to say that other folks wouldn't, but the conversation I was having with the residents, people said that they could find another unit somewhere close by, and then they, you'd have to get federal relocation, so you'd help with moving expenses, you'd help with any increases in rent for certain many years. So it wasn't a concern that 
the people that we talked to on, on those streets had, but that doesn't mean we didn't talk to everybody. So it is a concern. Yeah, I know that you talk. I know the people you talk to. And you know, guess what? They, they even ask you that if you really want to, going to sell it, tell us first. And be with those people, they cannot be, if they have a concern credit, they cannot buy it. And you reach out to few people because I look into it. And I know that you reach out to few people. I'm going to still saying, I don't know what the rest of the council think, but we have to look at this carefully. We really have to. We are really doing something to, why is Taylor and Davis, you know? Why? That's the question. The, the, the South District is really huge. Why Taylor and Davis? We looked at that area with the time that we did a, our first um, equity analysis as we looked at um, complaint basis all throughout Iowa City. It was a university. We saw the Taylor Davis neighborhood had a high complaints. Um, we saw decreased assessed values for homes along Taylor and Davis. Um, and every neighborhood that I talked to, they were, they didn't, some didn't have a preference whether we used it for rental rehabilitation or home ownership. They just wanted to make sure that money was used in their neighborhood along Taylor and Davis. Um, so six of the folks that we talked to preferred home ownership, two preferred rental, and then two just said as long as the money is going in their neighborhood that they, they're, they're happy to see the city invest in this neighborhood. Uh, because, you know, you said you're going to offer it to, to those people first, and after that you can offer it to our side. I'm, I'm very like maybe I'm, I'm positive. I don't want to say 100 percent, but some of you know, most of those people are not going to buy it, and we're going to end up having another person who have money from somewhere else come to that neighborhood, and we're displacing people from that neighborhood to go somewhere else because somebody knew from outside the neighborhood. I would love to to see that if council are not agreeing with me, this is not a bad. This is a bad thing to do. I would love to see the outcome, and I'm going to come and talk about it again, because I'm sure 100% those people, they will come at a point in time and talk about this, because people already start speaking. This is not a good idea. You are targeting certain people on the community. Don't do that. I'm kind of, after, after the fact, I'm kind of sorry I brought this up, except that I, I, I am excited about this project. You and I have talked about it, and I, I really, truly, at the bottom of my heart, believe that it's going to help uh, lower-income folks uh, on the path to become homeowners. As I mentioned earlier, uh, that's what everyone's uh, American dream is, is to be a homeowner, and I think they will see some value in this. If uh, I've driven through that neighborhood quite often, and, and some of those properties aren't kept up very well, and I think on, on one end of it, uh, if, if, if an owner is going to sell that property, no matter who buys that, that whoever that tenant is, is, is going to wind up being evicted or, or out of that property. And I think the city would like to be the one that helps them to, to find, find yeah. someplace else if they choose not to purchase that. So, yeah. Well, and I think, too, when you look at an area as the memo indicates where, you know, it was kind of based on the number of nuisance calls, police calls, and then most, almost most importantly to me is the decreasing values of the homes. Because people are not going to want to invest in an area when they see that the property values are going down instead of up. So by doing a program like this, and, and Jim, thank you for reading those, a number of those conditions, because I think those are incredibly important in terms of protecting the people that are living in those places, um, in those properties that we might, the city might look at. Um, 
um, you know, trying to find ones that are vacant or ones where people are planning to move out anyways as those being our highest priority. So we minimize any dislocation of people. And when we do dislocate, that we're giving them assistance, trying to help them live in that same area. But I, I feel very, very good about this. I do not believe that this is any effort to target any particular group of people. I think it is to look at a neighborhood that has demonstrated problems um, and find a mechanism where we can make that um, a stronger neighborhood and a better place for everybody to live and, and most importantly, the people who currently live there. What do you mean by like people, like an uh, area that demonstrating problems? What kind of problem, the, the phone call like for the police? What, what are you I, talking I, well, about? I said, when they indicated the reasons this area was selected, the number of nuisance calls, in other words, people not keeping up their property, you know, various, uh, violating various city ordinances with that, if there's a lot of police calls. Oh, and those. But let me finish. But as I said, to me, the absolutely one of the most important things in neighborhood stabilization is you want property values to be increasing. You want them to be performing in line with what all the neighborhoods in the community as a whole are. If they are decreasing, then you're headed for major, major problems because it says that people are disinvesting in that area and you're going to get people buying because they've gone down and the, but mm. they're going to be able to rent them but they're not going to maintain them. And so you're really, you're making that, that community, that area, that neighborhood less livable for the the most vulnerable people who are looking for low-income housing. So I see this as an opportunity to try and stabilize and improve the quality of the housing in that area, and at the same time, being incredibly sensitive to the people who are currently living there. But how do you know that the renter are the one who are making the call to the police? I'm not saying they are. This, this is a whole neighborhood thing. They're just the yeah, city. Because if we want to make it like really ownership, a home ownership, that means uh, because of the many call to the police, that means the renter are the one who are making the calls, no, no, not I, the owners. No, I, I, think you're, I think you're misunderstanding it, Mazi, here. They're, they're looking at the neighborhood and looking at the number of nuisance calls and police calls within the neighborhood, but then trying to be, um, what's the word I want, strategic or take advantage of situations where an owner is going to, wants to sell a house, it is vacant, hopefully, and or the tenants are planning to move out anyways. So it's not that that particular property has had any problems, but it is an opportunity to take a property that is now being rented and get it into home ownership, do a little fixing up, and again, work towards stabilizing the neighborhood. It, it's not it's not indicative that, that that particular property that the city might look to buy has had any problems itself in terms of nuisances or police calls. So I guess I'm I, more confident that I think some of the residents are going to be able to, to move up the economic ladder, because I think that's a value that we all share, is that we want to increase the incomes and the opportunity for all of our residents throughout, the throughout, throughout our community. And I think this does give that opportunity. I think homeownership, I would be disappointed if we only focused on homeownership, but I think affordable affordable home ownership is part of the equation. What we're really trying to do throughout the neighborhoods is to get a balance between low-income renting and low-income home ownership, and I think that's a piece of the equation. I'm more hopeful that I think some of these residents will be able to, and they're going to be targeted to try to be able to stay in these homes if they can, and then if not, we'll try to do other opportunities. And I'm hopeful, too, that we'll get residents that some people choose to live there, some people only live there because
because that's where all the low-income housing is, but our goal is to get low-income housing throughout the community. Hopefully we have some projects on the northeast side, south central side, so there'll be more opportunities for people to live throughout the community as opposed to just winter. So I'm, I am comfortable with where they are at this point, and I think I would encourage members of the public that do have concerns to come in public comment, to let us know, to keep giving us feedback so we can make more um, effective decisions. So I think that's ultimately what it's going to come down to, but I'm, I'm comfortable with the balance. Yeah, but you're saying, like, uh, or Bullion said, uh, this is really good and she's exciting about it because uh, low-income low people can have the opportunity to buy. Is this, like, affordable somehow? Because you guys told me before, uh, university, you know, city program is not affordable housing. And this has to be affordable since it's paid with home funds, so the yeah. homeowner has to be below 80% of median income. 80%? of the area medium income. And if they have any kind of problem, there is no help for like credit problems. So. We didn't get any funding for down payment assistance, so they'd have to qualify for a mortgage, but they just have to be below 80% of median income. But there is no help on down payment or anything? No. We'll be using all of our funds for the rehab of the unit. Um, Tracy, didn't you, wasn't in the memo that the estimation is that the the mortgage payments would be equal to or less than what a lot of people are paying for yeah, rents in that area. Yep. Okay. We hope to be able to sell these homes between ninety to one hundred twenty thousand. Um, so someone at eighty percent of median income, that sixty to eighty percent should be able to qualify, should be able to afford the homes that we're going to okay. sell. Okay. And Thank they'll you. be renovated, so you're going into a home that has a, you know, a new furnace, a new roof. So they'll be they should be code compliant. And they should have their major systems, I'm taken care of. Okay. Thank you, Tracy. We may ask you to come back up in a minute. Uh, any other items on uh, the September 27th packet? I guess I want to talk about IB10, Affordable Housing Program, like 15, 18. This report said that the city of Iowa City has provided over 7.6 million in funding for affordable housing project for physical years of 2015 through 2018. This has or will create and really and duplicate count of 397, 397 assisted unit of affordable housing. I guess when I ask how many of three, 397 units are being rent for less than $500 by month, because I think, I think, or my goal, our goal is to produce a very, very low price unit for the people who are like under the 30% area median income. And I, I would love if we can track that, if we can track how many of these being lent like 30% of the area median income. It's on uh, page yeah. three. Three? Page three at the top of the page, you can see the summary of the targeted income levels. So under 30%, we have 10% uh, or 39 units. Yeah, uh, you know, just next time, I, you know, just numbers will, yeah, will work. This is like maybe three, 13, yeah, 10% of this. You saw those numbers. 10% ten, ten of those units that you cited, 397, I believe, um, fall under 30% of the targeted income level. Which is the total will be 39 unit. 39 right. units, correct. Which is there, yeah. Yeah. 
just to clarify, that is the income that that project is limiting, that does not, that does not indicate the rent level. So that means that the income is capped at 30% of, yes, of the area yes, income. Yes, that's what I that's meant. That's not the rent, though. The rent would be based on the home fair market rent or the CDG fair market rent, which, depending on the unit size, may be over $500 per month. Yeah, I mean like 30% of the area median income. Yeah, so the, if it's targeted by income level, that's on there, but the actual rent That means 39 family being under 30% 30, 30 of the area median income. That's what you meant, right? Or I'm mistaken. Huh? <laughs> 39, unit, 39 family or unit yes, has been rented under 30% of the area. And this is the maximum income by the agreement. By practice, many people may fall <coughs> below 30%, but the agreement would basically say less than 50%, less than 60 or 80. Uh -huh. The majority of folks would probably fall into 30%, but the agreement allows you to go up to 50, 60, 80. Okay, sure. I'd like to make a brief comment about this particular memo. First of all, I'd like to thank Kirk Lehman and whoever else worked on the um, putting the data together uh, with Kirk. Uh, it's an outstanding report. It's the first time we've tried to generate this kind of information and this kind of detail. So I'm really pleased to see it. So thanks to the staff in particular. And I want to emphasize that it says um, the city has provided over $7.6 million in funding for affordable housing projects over the fis from fiscal year 2015 through 2018, and that has created or will create an unduplicated count of 397 assisted units of affordable housing. So it's not trivial, uh, but it, we, we need to do more and we'll have to have further discussion about how to do that. But thanks so much for putting the report together. Um, any other items? We have about seven more minutes or thereabouts. I just want to have the same question for IB 11 for the report from the Housing Trust Fund because there is also 82 house uh, household are being I just want to know also the same question. But I, uh, I thought maybe I missed it, but it's not there. I think we have that in a recently submitted IP. Um, yeah, a few it weeks ago. came up ago. a month or two ago. I, I'd have to, maybe during the break, I can find that number for you. But Tracy Achenbach reported that um, yeah, maybe a I month or so ago. Tracking that, yeah. With regard to IP12, sorry to jump ahead, folks. Somebody else may wanted to, maybe wanted to bring this up, but it's a September 26 memo about the affordable housing location model. And to jump to the quick here, uh, staff is recommending that we delay a reevaluation of that particular model until after the completion of the fair housing study, which is going to be started soon or has already started in order to prevent duplication of effort and to identify whether the revised model remains a barrier to fair housing in Iowa City. Uh, that seems to me that's a, a, a pretty reasonable recommendation, primarily because of the need to complete the fair housing study and to make progress on the af other affordable housing initiatives, objectives that we've already given to you, like reconsidering the whole affordable housing uh, action plan in terms of, you know, sort of a plan 2.0. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, I think it's a pretty reasonable recommendation. Yeah, I, I would agree. I'm concerned. I mean, that whole thing was just redone like 18 months ago, finished like 18 months ago. And I mean, we can't, every 12 to 18 months, we can't just completely redo and revisit all of these things. And I think particularly as, as Jeff has talked about to us too, we've got a lot of new staff in the planning area. Um, who are still trying to get up to speed. And as you said, Jim, we've given staff a lot of uh, things through the strategic plan in terms of priorities. So I think this really needs to wait. Plus just the other things that are going on, it makes sense to wait as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to talk about the same thing, really. Okay. Uh, I, I just learned about this map for Iowa City. Mm -hmm. And uh, because, you know, and I find out that this map, like, been uh, created a long time ago, and uh, they identified the, you know, the dark, the dark green was uh, low income, like, um, people who live, like, on the, more on the south side of the Iowa City. And if I, just correct me if I not understand this right, because from the way that I review it, I find out uh, when they create this map, they stop the fund for all those dark green area, any city fund. In the same time, they will start funding a project on the light green area, so we can have like equal distributions of like low-income projects throughout the city. You know, the idea is fantastic. But since then, I don't think there is any like city money has been really start using to develop those kind of uh, uh, you know the goal. The, 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 you know the goal was to uh, to fund project in somewhere else, not those area because we don't want to have like more you know low income housing in those kind of area. And uh, but nothing has been done, and that's if telling me something gonna tell that we stop assisting, like, we stopped the fund from that area, but we have not done anything. I that's what... Don't, don't believe that's no, true. No, that's not, not at all true. Jeff, uh, do you have detail? No, on that, we, we use that practice in, in when we distribute funds on an annual basis. So the, the affordable housing model's been in effect for... I don't know if that's in the memo, but a significant number of years. And as we go through, for example, home and CDBG processes, um, that absolutely guides where we will. Do we had? Do we create another one somewhere else? Have we create more? Like yep. we update the map Tracy on it. Yeah. 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 Tracy, what's that, excluded please. on that map? That map is just for new rental construction. So senior housing. Um, people with disabilities housing is, is exempt. Also, um, housing housing rehab is also exempt. So if it's already affordable housing, we can we can renovate it. We've spent 1.2 million in the recent past just on the Broadway condos and the HACAP units in rental rehabilitation. So we've spent a significant portion of our CDBG and home funds in that area because it's exempt. So you can do rental rehab. It's to preserve the existing housing stock anywhere in the city. No, I don't mean rental rehab. You know, that's that's okay. I mean like when they create when they stop like new develop. Yeah, no, but yeah, the model does stop new rental construction in those areas to to disperse and to to have housing units scattered throughout Iowa. Yes. But the goal was to provide more like develop on the on the other areas here, right? No one of the city council goals was to um, to, I think how it's worded, 
to not place additional um, affordable housing in areas that already have high concentrations of poverty. So that is the reason why those those neighborhoods are not encouraged for additional affordable housing So when we fund the housing fellowship, for example, and they're going to they have located in the light green areas. They have to find properties in the light green areas. Yeah, but, but I mean, those. that's the only project so far we fund. No, no, no on an annual basis, we're funding projects on, in uh, those, on in the those light green, green areas. Area. Yeah. yeah, I would love to know, like, really, how, how since you stopped this, since we stopped, like, uh, funding the dark green area for new project, I would love to have idea. Maybe the rest of the council know, but uh, I'm new, and I would, like, I would love to learn about what else besides the housing fellowship that I know about in Riverfront Crossing, if there is something else has been done. Yeah, Mayor's Youth, um, Successful Living have bought purchased homes for people with disabilities in these areas, too. Yeah, it's still for older people. You know, I, I, I would love to know, like, more about this, if you created more. Because this has been for a quite long time, uh, I guess more than one year, two years since it's been. But my goal is today, if you, the council agree, I would love really to review this uh, overall with, uh, when you review overall affordable housing action plan, if we can include this map and review it again. No? No? Not now. I, like we just said. We, we just, just reviewed it about 12 months ago, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, which one? That I was not here. Map. No, 18 months ago. 18 I think months it's, ago. 18 years ago. I think it was April of 17. Oh, you said a month ago. It, no. he, he, yeah, but it was about 18 months ago that we reviewed the affordable housing action um, location model. We just we did it 18 months ago. Ah, uh, what the outcome? What are you going to do? It was revised. It was, it was revised. Was I, I, I think it's a salutary goal is we're trying to prevent segregated neighborhoods, ah, which not has the been a huge like problem yeah. for the school district. Look, we're trying to prevent segregated neighborhoods, and we're trying to get opportunity throughout the city. And I think in terms of the demonstrated projects, we have the LIHTC project on the in the hopper for South Dubuque, and I think there's a ton of other projects that we've done in the green areas. So I think probably that should be readily available from by the staff. Um, but I, I'm comfortable in terms of where we're at. And I haven't gotten any feedback from people that don't like the map. I mean, I know that there may be some people. I did not say, Rokne, I did not like the map. You okay. guys don't, don't okay. got me wrong. I said I need to see more project on the light green area. Yes. That's what I said. And if you have really done something that I don't know, I would like to know how much you are doing, the rate that we're going to do it. And if we have not reviewed this, since being created by other councils, I guess, we need to revisit this. That's what I said. Right. And, and we have reviewed it 18 months ago. But it doesn't look like this anymore, you mean? It, it's, that map differs from the map that existed okay. before. It's the dark green is basically smaller. Smaller than yeah. it used but to the, be. I mean, the general pattern is the same, but that, that part is smaller. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I will have to have staff meeting. Why don't I arrange a time for you to meet yes, with the staff? Definitely. It would be great. All right. So I think we're going to have to stop there. But um, we should come back to the September 27th info packet. Uh, in particular, IP number 9, which is agenda items for the joint entities meeting. And then if there are any other topics on that um, information packet you want to discuss. But, but help us remember to go back to that, please. All right, uh, let's adjourn the work session until after the formal meeting. Or not adjourn it. Um, what's the verb? <laughs> um, well, we'll return to the work session after the formal meeting. <laughs> that works.
Okay, we were uh, discussing uh, items on the September 27th information packet, and I had just uh, noted IP number nine, and I've got to find the page number here for me on my notes. What's it about? Council meeting? 25. With, um, yeah, this is... Um, School board and nine. joint yeah. meeting. Yeah, it's about the joint meeting. Uh, possible agenda topics are not. Yeah, agenda topics for that joint meeting. I had a question about that too. After you're done. Well, a, a couple come to my mind just to get things going. The gateway ribbon cutting and inviting people to that. We don't have to have a lengthy discussion. Just invite people. Another is to introduce our newest council member which would be a good thing to do. I hope the county talks about its state of poverty event. What? State of poverty in the county event. Other ideas? I really just don't know, like, what kind of thing we come with there usually. Do you have, like... Well, it's usually, it's usually intended to inform the other people from the other jurisdictions about something that's going on in, in the city that they would want to know about, or else something they're doing that we want to know about. <laughs> okay, because I, I, I really interesting, uh, like, because it's going to be public, right? Will yeah. it be public? Yeah. Uh, if, if they can talk a little bit about bearing school together. What? School pairing. School pairing. Oh, oh right. Yeah. We uh, sure we could ask the uh, the the uh, yeah. The so school this is a way of also, that. like, people can know about it if some people are watching city council meeting. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the affordable housing? Um, you know, like some of the that report we just got, uh, and if possible. I guess it's maybe a little bit early budget-wise, but a look ahead in terms of what what potential ways or possible ways we may be looking at expanding and up, updating the uh, Affordable Housing Action Plan. Well, could could be. Let me say something about the presentation I made to the Affordable Housing Coalition. I know Pauline just met, uh, mentioned that uh, she and I had been at that. Uh, I, I made a, I don't know, 12-minute speech or something like that that went through the, the nature of the problem as, as I understand it. What had been done up till the recent past, what we've been trying to do over the past three-plus years, what else could be done looking ahead, and then presented them with a thought experiment uh, and I, I don't want to go into detail about that right now. I've asked Jeff and some other staff to read it to make sure it's factually correct and so on. I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't want to present them with that, but that's the closest I personally could come to doing what you just suggested, John. On the other hand, maybe uh, maybe staff, Jeff uh, or uh, Tracy, uh, could present an overview of the memo. Does it makes sense because of some planning through budgeting and other things that maybe we'd wait on that one until the next quarter? I, I'm just... Yeah. I, that makes sense to me. I'm okay with it. Yeah, that's fine, too. I was just... It seemed we had a lot of material in our information packet. And, yeah, some great And material. I was very, you know, 
impressed by it, and I, I would think the community would like to hear that information as well. But I, th I think with what Jim's saying too, and, and you mentioned going through the budgeting and seeing the yeah. look ahead might be a little clearer once we've yeah. got a few more meetings under our belt. Uh -huh. Yeah, that, that's fine too. Other possible agenda items? That's good. Okay, well, we don't have to just dream up items, right? <laughs> okay, so there's that. Uh, any other items on the September 27th information packet? I have a, a, a couple that I'd like um, to bring to your attention. Uh, one is, uh, relates to the pending work session list. Uh, the city clerk pulled you to check your availability for a special work session on the downtown historic survey. It sounds to me like the 23rd of October was the date that worked for so this is a special work session for which topic? The downtown, downtown. historic survey. 23rd? Well, that's the question we want to ask is typically we start at 5, but if there's a time that you prefer earlier in the day, we could start earlier. Um, the consultant's available. So if we do lock down the 23rd, we would hold the public meeting on the 22nd, and then the consultant's really available for us the next day at any time that would be most convenient for the council. My calendar's open. I mine's can do any time. Right? Mine's, pretty, mine's open. pretty open. All right, John Rockney. Okay. Works for me. Uh, do you all want to meet early in the morning, or do you want to meet later in the afternoon? I guess the earliest is better, morning. if you guys don't mind. Uh, 9 o'clock? Jeff, I don't know. I'm just throwing out a, a time there. Yes. Nine's good. Nine good for me. All right. So Make it work. Mm-hmm. Are we talking an hour, two hours, do you know, or? Well, that probably it's depends on how many questions that, <laughs> that you all have, but um, I, I would guess that it's probably going to take a good 45 minutes uh, to an hour just to let the consultant review the process that she undertook. Yeah, my guess is we'll have lots of questions about here, it. Right? Yeah, we'll do that here. All right, 9 a.m., right? The second item I had, um, IP 14, um, uh, that you heard public comment on today was a memo from the DEER Task Force. Uh, we are in a position right now where we feel we're ready to reapply to the state. Their next meeting is uh, on November 8th. Uh, so we're just looking for direction if you want us to go forward and apply um, as we did earlier in the year uh, for um, a, a permit to, to conduct the sharpshooting. Uh, Eleanor, to what extent can we discuss this uh, in a kind of substantive way? Well, it's in your info packet, and your info packet's been noticed, so. Okay. <clears throat> well, <laughs> one, one thing I heard from lots of people was that there are alternative ways of dealing with the deer problem. My understanding has always been that the deer population will continue to increase until they start having difficulty finding food, and then they start dying. And I think this is a pretty typical kind of um, ecosystemic uh, challenge. So if I'm understanding that situation correctly, 
we do need to manage the deer population. It, it, we don't really have too much choice. It, they're either going to manage themselves by dying off and then building back up, or we manage the population. And I don't think uh, other folks who spoke to us earlier tonight uh, were thinking that way. So I believe that means we do need to take action, and I, I'm not a fan of bows, or bows and arrows, that is. I had an arrow fly by my head in mid-'90s when I was knocking on doors campaigning for election. I don't want to have that happen <laughs> to me or anybody else. Well, <laughs> I agree with you, with you, Jim, and and I didn't bother to correct the woman, but she said none of the council members were here the night of that hearing, and I was here. Um, so I listened to all the public input that night. I listened to Tony DiNicola, Dr. DiNicola from White Buffalo, um, as well as listened to the members of the Deer Commission. And, um, you know, people can talk about, uh, the one woman talked tonight about, um, you know, either sterilization, sterilization, birth control. Dr. DiNicola is, uh, he's a, he's got his PhD, he's, he does this, but he's also an incredibly, uh, incredible scientist in terms of the research he's done and what he continues to do. And I'm with you, Jim. I think we do one of two things. We let the deer population the deer take care of themselves, in which case they're going to get to the point of just really decimating vegetation. Um, and that's one thing that people talked about that night is you, you should, we should be looking at not just the animal population, but also the vegetation population, if you will. And, and the deer certainly have um, more than damaged some areas. Um, I can, and, and I'm not saying this because it's my property, but I can tell you they've done it in my property. I mean, the, and it, I'm not talking about just the plants I care about. I'm talking about the whole ecosystem of the woods has changed in the 35 years that I've lived there because of the deer. And so we can either go that route and let them end up starving, you know, getting sick and starving to death. Um, you'll, you'll find illness, et cetera, or we can take a more proactive approach, which will be ongoing. I totally recognize that. This is not, this is not do it and then you're done. It's going to be do it maybe every year for a couple of years or three years and then maybe every other year, every third year. I, we probably should have done that before and not let it go 10 or 15 years. I mean, we probably should have just kept it going. Um, and I'm totally on board with what you're saying, Jim. I do not like bows and arrows. If we're going to do this, I want it to be as quick and painless as absolutely possible for those animals. And so I think the sharpshooters have um, the experience and, and they've done this. So I would encourage us to go forward um, to the DNR and see if we can get the permit. I would as well. You know, I, I think with the animal population, I think it's whether it's a wild animal or a household pet, um, we have an awesome responsibility when you're talking about taking life. I mean, we're talking about sacred creatures. We're talking about, um, you know, creatures that are part of our world, our environment. And I think it's an absolutely heavy responsibility that we all share um, in making this decision. And I think it is something that we do not tread lightly on. Um, but that said, I mean, there's millions of years of evolution for purposes of predator-prey relationships. And the reality is, is we do not have predators. Um, and so we do have 100 years of experience what happens to populations. I mean, people can show me the data sets on there if, you, if you're listening. In cases in which 
um, predators were not there in which prey naturally controlled their population without starvation um, or mass defoliation. If people can show me that case study, I would consider it, but I'm not aware of any of those. We have a lot of data. I myself am not a hunter, um, but the reality is, is that is what now has replaced um, uh, predator relationships. And these would be professional hunters, they would be expert marksmen, I think as Susan, as you indicated, a lot of them are military sharpshooters. And so. so it's not a decision that we take lightly, but I think we also have uh, a sacred duty as well to protect our public, and there is a risk. And you know, I don't wanna wait until we have an overpopulation and we have collisions on the highways and on the interstates. So um, it is it is a, a tough decision to make, but is one that I think that we have to make, and it's uh, uh, decision that we'll continue to monitor, but I, I think we need to move forward with that because I think to convey for another work session suggests that there's not the ambiguity here that I think that there is. Um, we do have a consensus here, at least I think we do, and, and I'd like to move forward with it. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add that, you know, the Deer Committee in that memo ended by saying uh, they suggest council routinely visit Iowa City's need for deer population management, and I think that is an important uh, to keep in mind, I mean, I, as, as we've been saying, I, it, this is not a decision I enjoy making. Um, but as we've said, the alternatives <laughs> aren't very uh, appealing either. So, um, and, and it seems to me the effects are not equally distributed. I think they're, the, the, the deer population are impacting certain areas more than others, but that that impact will just expand over time if it's not managed. So I, I do support the sharpshooting. I guess I'm going to be the only person on this, the lone wolf on this, because I just, I just think it's not a good idea with all the uh, gun violence issues going around the country and, and uh, issues about that for us to say it's okay for us to have sharpshooters within our city limits. Uh, and I, I truly believe that we've contributed to this issue of the deer roaming inside our city limits uh, by taking down their natural environments and, and putting buildings up. And and, and pavement, and I have not seen true data to uh say that there are a, a number of accidents related to, to deer. I, I did not see that there. The ones I did see, and you mentioned the highways, that's true, um, but DOT kind of has control of that, and we can't exactly put sharpshooters out there uh, on the edge of the interstate. Um, I find myself find uh, squirrels and raccoons more of a problem uh, causing accidents, people swerving to try to avoid them than, than I've heard about uh, the deer incidents. So uh, I, I would be especially uh, moving that quickly into the November 8th date of, of applying for it. I, I would be against that. Okay. Maz? I don't know. This is really a tough topic for me. <laughs> you know, I guess I started seeing the deer around my house where I live right now, and I guess uh, Susan Mims and I, we don't live like far away from each other. Uh, I guess moved there, and this is for the first time I've been seeing like really uh, the deer like at the evening time, like around maybe nine o'clock when I go out, and I will see them start like going around. Um, my husband, three days ago, one of the deer like broke his uh, light on the car while he was driving and the deer come to cross the street. And um, 
at the same time, you know, I really don't like shooting, but at the same time, I don't like also the arrow, you know, because this is, could be mistakenly, like, hit somebody. And also, you know, uh, in addition to, like, as somebody said, this is less for, like, more than, th th this will be one day, the shooting, the sharp shooting, but the, it will be taking, like, long time for them. I kind of really torn on, on 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 this, not like on on the which one. I like the sharp shooting if that the option. If we have only like two options, which is like sharp shooting on there. But I, uh, I also concerning about some people. They say there is another way to manage, uh, you know, uh, those deer, and I, I would love to know. Really, I don't have a lot of information about this, and I don't want to really vote on this for this time. I just want to just be silent until I learn more. Okay, it sounds to me like there are at least four uh, in favor of moving ahead, Jeff, with considerable regret. Okay. That's the end of uh, the September 27th information packet, right? Nobody wants anybody want to bring anything else up. Okay, uh, then we're left with whatever this last topic is. There it is. Council updates on assigned boards. Rock, you've done already mine. done yours. Um, let's see, uh, uh, Pauline, you've already done yours with the harm summit, basically. Right, uh, right. Harm reduction, that is. Um, well. Uh, let me say a few things cause, uh, <laughs> because uh, I didn't have a chance to say this earlier. So the Convention and Visitors Bureau uh, Board met on September the 20th. Some of the discussion oriented around the Cross World Cup and a few other things. And I don't know how that went. Uh, was it a, uh, hopefully a big success? From what I hear, they had the biggest crowd they've had out up there on Saturday despite the Despite the rain? Rain and muddy weather. Good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. But there was also considerable discussion and concern about the existing and growing excess capacity in hotel beds within the area. As you can imagine, it's the Convention and Visitors Bureau, so they have, a, you know, they have hotel and motel operators on the board. And the gist of what I heard was overall, J Josh Amberger was saying, it looks to him as though the total hotel-motel tax revenues are going to decline despite the fact that the number of beds is going to increase, and it's because the vacancy rates will increase and the, 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 they're having to reduce rents or uh, reduce rates. rates. Okay. Uh, so the end result is, oh, for, the, for the area as a whole, is... Um, a, a bit of a decline probably in revenue, but not for Iowa City. For Iowa City, it's likely to increase for reasons having to do with Hyatt Place and et cetera, and the rise, and not the rise, Heart the Hilton Garden Inn, and so on. All right, so there was that. And then Pauline and I are going to meet with the president and vice president of the school district tomorrow, Janet Godwin and Paul Russler. What, in the afternoon, I think? I can't remember. And I was planning, Jeff and I were going to meet with the mayor of Cedar Rapids and the general, uh, the city manager of Cedar Rapids, but they had to cancel out for you know, unexpected reasons. 
And John Dell, John Lundell told me just a couple days ago that he's talked with Terry Donahue a couple more times, and Terry's going to try to arrange a time for the three of us to have lunch. But so, moving ahead, maybe on that. Anybody else want to say anything about uh, this particular work session topic? All right, if not, I think that means we're done with the work session for tonight.